Hurricane Irma is already destroying buildings and lives throughout the Caribbean. It's bearing down on Florida. But the waters are still receding in Houston, and people are assessing the damage and figuring out how to rebuild their lives. And this week, Trump went back to visit Texas on Saturday. And this time around, he actually met with victims. He handed out hot dogs and potato chips. He hugged some kids. He was friendly. People seemed pretty pleased to see him. Then, when he talked to the press, this exchange happened. What did the family tell you earlier? They were just happy. We saw a lot of happiness. It's been really nice. It's been a, it's been a wonderful thing. It's as, tr- as tough as this was, it's been a wonderful thing. I think even for the country to watch and for the world to watch. It's been beautiful. I want to make it clear what happened there. A reporter asked Trump what he heard from the people he met, and Trump couldn't tell him. Not one word of what people actually said to him. He just said they were happy. And I get it. When the president is visiting, you're, you're going to put on your best face. You're going to be polite. It's human nature. It's manners. But does he really believe these people are happy? Does he think people whose homes and lives have been upended or just peachy? Trump didn't bother to connect with these people. There were no real conversations about what they were facing or what they need. He wasn't affected personally. The one thing he cared about was the perception that he had done a good job, that he had succeeded. He he didn't look beyond the polite smiles because he didn't want to. He didn't want to deal with anything more complicated than the satisfaction at the job he had personally done managing the emergency response. No real sympathy, no real empathy. Going to a hurricane shelter and seeing nothing but happiness? That is not normal. Hello, and welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Burney. On last week's episode, I interviewed Juan Escalante, an undocumented advocate, on the impact of Trump's canceling DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Make sure to go back and listen to that interview if you haven't. Of course, you can find that episode and all our episodes on our website, thetrumpscorecard.org. So on Tuesday, Trump made it official. He made the announcement that he was canceling DACA. Good morning. I'm here today to announce that the program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. Wait, that's not Donald Trump announcing the policy. That's racist goblin Jeff Sessions. And you can't see it because this is a podcast and not a television show, but he was grinning from ear to ear when he made that announcement. Telling Jeff Sessions he gets to deport a bunch of Latinos is like telling me I get to eat a bunch of brownies. And I actually have brownies upstairs in the freezer. That's that's exciting. So Trump was too chicken shit to introduce this cruel policy. But it's not like he regrets it either. A reporter asked him if he had any second thoughts, and here's what he said. No second thoughts. No second thoughts. And even though Juan covered it better last week than I ever could, I want to talk again about how cruel this is. 800,000 people gave their personal information to the government in exchange for peace of mind. You can work, you can go to school, you can drive a car. Without being terrified, you'll be kicked out of the country at any moment. Now those people who grew up here 
have no idea what's going to happen to them. And that information they gave to get that peace of mind can now be used to target them for deportation. But Trump has no second thoughts. He says he dumped DACA to force Congress to act, but that's ridiculous. He could have encouraged them to act without bringing terror to 800,000 people and their families. But he didn't. He's leaving them out in the cold, unsure of their future. And he has no second thoughts. While Jeff Sessions is on our minds, and dear God, I, I really wish he spent less time there. Do you remember that woman who was arrested for laughing at his confirmation hearing because Richard Shelby uh, said Sessions applied the law equally to everyone, which, let's be honest, is hilarious. She was found guilty, but then a judge threw out her conviction because it was stupid, and you'd think they'd be smart enough to say, no, let's just, let's just leave this be, because we're conservatives and we don't believe in government overreach, and prosecuting someone for laughing at a government official is definitely overreach. But instead, they're saying, we should definitely prosecute this woman again, because we're authoritarians, and if there's one thing authoritarians believe in, it's prosecuting mild criticism of the regime. And while that isn't always easy under the First Amendment, we found ourselves a little loophole here that lets us send a message to people that we will convict you of a crime because you said something we don't like. So yes, they're going to give Desiree Farouz a new trial, again, for the crime of laughing during Jeff Sessions' confirmation hearing. You know who isn't going on trial? Jeff Sessions, who lied under oath during his confirmation hearing, which seems to me like a more serious crime. No one's prosecuting him, not even once, let alone twice. I don't know if you remember this from the campaign or from the 678,000 times I've brought it up during the podcast, but Donald J. Trump promised to drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. And we all know what draining the swamp means, don't we? It certainly doesn't mean undoing everything a black president did because his blackness made it illegitimate and offensive to a population of resentful white people. Oh no. It meant someone would finally clean up the corruption in D.C. Trump was going to give the power back to the people. No, not just the white people. Whatever would make you suggest such a thing? All the people. The forgotten man. Trump was going to take power away from the corporations and the lobbyists and Wall Street and finally put the little guy in charge. Sure, he may have put a bunch of Wall Street bankers in his cabinet and among his close advisors, and yes, a lot of people throughout his administration are lobbyists working on the very issues they used to lobby on in violation of Trump's own ethics rules, but how dare you, how dare you suggest that Donald Trump is not committed to draining the swamp in Washington, D.C.? Swamp filled with dirty money used to influence politicians. Donald Trump is draining that swamp right into his own pockets. USA Today did an amazing investigation into who has memberships at Trump's golf courses, especially the ones he has frequented as president. I want to read this passage because it's a great example of how journalism is done. This is from USA Today on September 6th. Because membership lists at Trump's clubs are secret, the public has until now been unable to assess the conflicts they could create. 
USA Today found the names of 4,500 members by reviewing social media and a public website golfers use to track their handicaps, then researched and contacted hundreds to determine whether they had business with the government. That's a lot of work. On that list of club members, they found 50 executives of companies that do business with the government and 21 lobbyists. Two-thirds of those people had golfed on days when the president was at the club. So these people, who stand to make millions of dollars based on government policy, have direct, unfiltered access to the president. And just by being there, they make him aware that they are putting money directly into his pocket. They are paying the President of the United States, for access to him. Is there any definition of corruption this doesn't fit? The moment Trump decided not to divest his holdings, he automatically set himself up to be influenced by his own financial interests. And this, this just shows how naked his corruption can be. CEOs and lobbyists are paying money to the president to get close to the president. Trump likes to say how he isn't subject to corruption laws because they don't apply to the president, and he's not wrong, and we should fix that. But do we hold the president to any moral standards anymore? Maybe maybe the remarkable thing about this story is that it didn't make much of a dent in the news cycle, and sure, it's hard to fit it in between live shots of reporters getting blown down by hurricanes. I, I get it. But I'll just go ahead and say it a third time. CEOs and lobbyists are paying the president money to hang out with him. That's what corruption looks like. That's an enormous scandal, even when things are so not normal. And here's a really great example of the kind of thing that results from this sort of corruption. Trump recently nominated a new head of the Mine Safety and Health Administration in the Department of Labor. Now, you and I both know Donald Trump loves coal miners. He talks about them all the time. He meets with them. He tells them he's bringing their industry back from the brink. And coal miners love him back. So you would think he would put the most qualified, most careful, most dedicated student of mine safety in all of history to protect some of his most fervent supporters, which is why, naturally, he just appointed a former coal executive from a company that had multiple mine safety violations to the job. Trump nominated David Zatesla, the former head of Rhino Resources, which twice got patterns of violations letters from the very agency he's nominated to lead. Because... Here's the thing. Trump doesn't want to make mines safer for miners. He wants to eliminate regulations, safety standards, enforcement. Now, he may honestly believe this is the path to bringing back coal mining jobs. Spoiler alert, it ain't. But what it will absolutely do is put coal miners in greater danger. Give coal companies the chance to shirk on safety measures, and they will. And more miners will die as a result. Putting a former coal executive in charge of enforcing mine safety seems like a good way to guarantee that will happen. Trump embarrassed the Republican leadership this week by striking a deal with Democrats to extend both the debt ceiling and federal spending by three months. Republicans wanted a longer-term deal to give them room to push tax reform, but Trump essentially ignored them, giving in to Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. And the Republican Party 
exploded. It was definitely a grab-the-popcorn moment. Everyone in Congress complained that Trump had given away the moon. Trump supporters said it was all Paul Ryan's fault because he was such a weakling. Just listen to what Lou Dobbs had to say. I'm talking about Speaker Paul Ryan and his obsequious deference to corporate lobbyists, his unbridled hostility toward President Trump. The president not only took Rhino Ryan to the woodshed, but eliminated any need for any Republican to ever pretend again that Ryan is a real Republican in any way, or that any rhino has a political future after Mr. Trump simply booted the hapless fool of a speaker out of the way of those trying to get the nation's business done. And remember, that's after Trump cut a deal with the Democrats. No one knows if this deal can even pass, if it will have enough Republican votes to get through. It also puts Ryan's speakership in danger again, although he may be safe just because no one in his or her right mind would ever want that job. But that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about that tax reform bill I alluded to. Trump and those same leaders he just threw under the bus are working on a tax plan that will obviously give a bunch of big tax breaks to rich people and giant corporations. That's just Republican boilerplate there, and and Trump isn't going to rock that boat. But what's really fascinating is a proposal floated this week to pay for those tax cuts, taxing your 401k retirement savings up front. That's right. They want to pay for rich people's tax cuts by taxing middle class people's retirements. Now, let me be clear. This is essentially a gimmick. It means moving taxes to the depositing side of your 401k instead of the withdrawing side at the end. In other words, it's basically stealing money from the future. But what it could do in the short term is discourage people from putting more money into their savings. At a time when retirement security is so low, I'm thinking about going to Walmart today to apply to be a greeter 25 years from now. Look, it's not shocking that people like Donald Trump and Steven Mnuchin would want to cut their own taxes on the backs of the middle class. But it's always a little amazing to watch how blatant they are about it. I don't know if this will make it into the final proposal or if it will pass into law, but even considering this idea gives you a pretty good sense of who these people are. Ranking the worst of Donald Trump's cabinet is genuinely difficult. If if you're a regular listener, and of course you are, why wouldn't you be? You'd probably guess I'd pick Jeff Sessions. And okay, you're right. He's awful. God. What a bastard. But listen, Betsy DeVos is very close behind. Everything she announces is designed to hurt students. Everything. Just this week, the Department of Education announced it was severing a partnership with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Now, you probably remember the CFPB is the agency Elizabeth Warren set up before she joined the Senate. Its entire mission is to keep banks and credit card companies and payday lenders and other financial institutions from screwing you over. Needless to say, Republicans hate it. So the Education Department and the CFPB were working together to protect students who were being targeted by student lenders for unfair practices. But DeVos now claims the CFPB has been handling complaints instead of referring them back to the Department of Education. In other words... The CFPB is doing its job too well. It has the audacity to handle student complaints against lenders. So, of course, Betsy DeVos is going to stop working with them. But 
That is not the worst thing she did this week, not by a long shot. To understand what she did, first you need to understand what Title IX is. And luckily, I have a friend who can explain it to you. It, it basically protects people from gender discrimination and sex-based discrimination in education. You normally hear about it as it's applied to sport, but it also applies to cases of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and rape. If, if, if any group is being singled out for harassment, like you, you should get protections under the, under the Title IX law. And this is important because studies by the FBI, studies by a number of independent organizations, et cetera, have found time and time again that one in four women will experience either sexual assault or rape during their college and campus careers. This rate goes dramatically up if you're a woman of color, if you're a black woman, if you're a native woman, if you're an immigrant woman. And so when one out of four women you know when you're on campus have been assaulted or raped during their college careers, that's not just a problem. That's a, that's a national crisis. That's Nita Chowdhury, the co-founder of Ultraviolet, an excellent feminist advocacy group, which you should join if you haven't already. I'll, I'll put a link to their website up on mine, thetrumpscorecard.org. And before I get to what Betsy DeVos did, let's talk about how the Obama administration used Title IX to protect victims of sexual assault. And so what the Obama administration did after decades of lobbying from sexual assault groups, survivor groups, groups that provide services to people who have been assaulted or raped on campus, what they did is they sent a letter and they said, look, you are responsible for protecting students who have been assaulted or raped on campus under your Title IX federal law obligations. And should you not comply with that, you are at risk for losing federal funding. So in some ways, this was a bold step. Many universities and colleges are private. Many aren't. You know, so there, there was a limited enforcement mechanism. But this was a bolder step than basically any other administration had ever undergone before. And it was basically signaling we, we have a crisis of, of epidemic proportions on our hands, and we're going to take this seriously. So what did DeVos do? She rescinded the Obama administration guidance because, of course, that's what this administration would do. Only in this case, it's not just the administration's habit of undoing everything Obama did as president because he's a black guy. For DeVos, this is a cause she's long been devoted to. She's a, she's a woman who has donated $10,000 of her personal money to organizations that advocate on behalf of accused rapists. And what she's saying is, I'm a little bit less interested in solving the epidemic of <laughs> rape that is widespread on college campuses. And I'm actually a little bit more concerned about these poor boys who rape women and what happens to them going on in their life. DeVos also announced the department would set up regional reporting centers that universities could feed sexual assault cases into. I asked Nita what her intentions were with this proposal. Yeah, what that's intended to do is to intimidate survivors of rape from coming forward. So the other problem that you have with rape, and that this is another thing that has been confirmed by every agency that's done, whether it's independent or federal, that's done research on this, is that the reason that women don't come forward and report rape is because 
they're afraid of being re-victimized. Was it your fault? Did you wear something? Did you drink too much? Did you, you know, are you legal? What do your parents do for a living? You know, kind of thing. And they don't want to go through that kind of trauma. And so what she's basically saying is, you deserve to go through that trauma. And so she's basically saying, you, you need to go through the whole rigmarole. Like, basically, you have to be proven guilty. <laughs> or you start out being assumed guilty. And that's not the way that things should work. Nita says campuses should set their own policies. And she has advice for how they go about doing it. The way the policy should be set is that school administrations should sit down. There are survivor groups on every campus unfortunately, and fortunately. But school administrations should sit down with women who've been affected and men who've been affected by assault and rape, and they should listen to them about what worked and what didn't work about the way that their cases were handled. And they should formulate policies that make sense based on the input of survivors. Survivors should have a seat at the table. DeVos's decision to prioritize the men accused of sexual assault over the women who suffer through it doesn't affect just those women. It doesn't just affect other women at the colleges and universities they attend. It has a deep, deep impact on our culture. When you think about some of these high-stakes schools that have, been, have made like waves and headlines over the past couple of years, I don't even know what the word is for it, but like for j- shamefully <laughs> um, adjudicating sexual assault cases, Stanford, Dartmouth, others. These are men who, what, what happens very often is that the school decides it doesn't have enough information, it's not the law, quote unquote, and it's not going to hold these guys accountable. Many of these times, these guys are legacy kids. These are kids that will go on to being very highly paid Wall Street staffers, corporate CEOs, the sons <laughs> in line for like legacy jobs. So if they're taught at 18, 19, 20, that if you're a star, you can get away with anything, imagine the consequences of that as they, as they work up the ladder of power. President Trump visited North Dakota this week to talk about, I don't know, oil or jobs or the economy or his hair or something, who cares? But something interesting always happens when Trump speaks, doesn't it? This time, it was this. Come up, honey. Should I bring Ivanka up? Come up. Sometimes they'll say, you know, he can't be that bad a guy. Look at Ivanka. No, come on up, honey. She's so good. She wanted to make the trip. She said, Dad, can I go with you? She actually said... Daddy, can I go with you? I like that, right? Daddy, can I go with you? I said, yes, you can. You know, the president admitting he likes it when his adult daughter calls him daddy might not be so creepy if there weren't so many examples of him talking about how hot her body is and how he wishes he could date her. But he has commented on her hotness, not her beauty, her hotness, many many times. And so when he says he likes it, when his 35-year-old daughter, who again, he said a bunch of times is hot, calls him daddy, folks, I'm not going to kink shame anyone, but that's his daughter. That's messed up. 
That's it for another week with Ivanka's gross daddy as our president. I want to thank Nita Chowdhury for coming on to talk about how Betsy DeVos is truly a terrible human being. Uh, I also need your support. I have some ideas for expanding and improving the podcast, but I need to bump up the number of patrons who have pledged just a few bucks per episode. Please join them. Go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Trump scorecard to find out how. Go. Go now. If you want to get in touch, sign up on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Trump scorecard. You can find me on Twitter at Jesse Bernie, or you can always send me an email at the Trump scorecard at gmail.com. And don't forget, you can find links to all the stories I've talked about today on the website, the Trump scorecard.org. Your school has an opportunity, has, has an obligation to you to protect you from that kind of, I apologize. I have a puppy who is like snoring very close to the microphone of this. <laughs> the Trump Scorecard is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Burney. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week. And remember, this is not normal. <laughs>